It's the Ralph Nader Radio Hour. Stand up, stand up. You've been sitting way too long. Welcome to the Ralph Nader Radio Hour. My name is Steve Scrovan, along with my co-host, David Feldman. Hello, David. Good morning. And we have the man of the hour, Ralph Nader. Hello, Ralph. Hello, everybody. For anyone who's considering new nuclear power plants as a viable alternative to fossil fuels, I'm talking to you, Oliver Stone. Our first guest has a sobering reminder. We're still cleaning up our old nuclear messes. First up today, we'll be speaking with journalist Joshua Frank. In his new book, Atomic Days, he shines a light on the Hanford Nuclear Reservation in Washington State, the most toxic place in America. In an environmental cleanup site, with a $677 billion price tag so far. For nearly 40 years, Hanford produced plutonium for America's nuclear arsenal. Today is home to 56 million gallons of poorly stored radioactive waste. It's already contaminating groundwater supplies, and an explosive accident there would rival Chernobyl. We'll speak to Mr. Frank about his book and the strong bonds between nuclear power and atomic weapons, the land they destroy, and the people they exploit. That brings us to the second half of the show. On a good day, immigrating to the United States is a tricky process. When Donald Trump took office in 2017, his administration rolled out more than 400 policy and regulatory changes to make immigration as painful as possible. Trump may be a one-term washout, but those punishing policies continue to impact stakeholders despite the best efforts of advocates who mobilized to stall implementation and represent the people caught in the middle. Our second guest will be immigration attorney Susan Cohen. We'll speak to her about her work over the last three decades, helping prospective Americans navigate our complex and confusing immigration system, and about her book, Journeys from There to Here, which profiles some of her clients and tells the human stories at the heart of immigration. We're also going to take some time out to talk about the upcoming midterm elections, And as always, somewhere in the middle, we'll check in with our corporate crime reporter, Russell Mokhyber. But first, how would you like to find out you live in the most toxic place in America? David? Joshua Frank is an investigative journalist and the managing editor of the political magazine Counterpunch. He is also an author. His latest book is Atomic Days, The Untold Story of the Most Toxic Place in America, Welcome to the Ralph Nader Radio Hour, Joshua Frank. Hi, thanks for having me. Yeah, welcome indeed, Joshua. This venture of yours on the Hanford Reservation in eastern Washington State. Now, start with the geography, Joshua. How large is this reservation, and how did it become a federal entity? Yeah, well, you know, it's about half the size of Rhode Island, It is a huge landmass that's in eastern Washington. The location was basically picked because of its remoteness during the Manhattan Project. It's along the Columbia River. And as you know, in order to have nuclear power, you have to have access to clean, ample water. So they had a lot of water. They had electricity, constant electricity because of the dams. But it was also out of sight, out of mind. It was easy to have this big covert operation happening out there. And of course, the indigenous population and others, typically poor farmers, were easy to remove from the landscape so that they could erect this atomic beast that ended up churning out plutonium for decades. Explain the Manhattan Project. Sure. Well, as you know, the the Manhattan Project was a covert 
military operation. Different locations were chosen around the country to develop a nuclear bomb. And from that, Hanford was the site that was chosen to produce plutonium, which became the fuel for the bomb that was dropped on Nagasaki. And then over the course of four more decades was churning out virtually all of the radioactive fuel for our nuclear arsenal in this country. And now we're dealing with the aftermath of that. Well, the Hanford Reservation now is soaked with radioactive waste. They have all kinds of gigantic tanks. Some of them are leaking, and they're perilously close to the Columbia River. How close are they to the giant Columbia River? Some of them are only, you know, five miles away. It's hard to wrap your head around how much waste is out there. There are 177 underground tanks, 149 of which are single-shelled tanks. These tanks were only supposed to last 20 to 25 years. We're going on 80 years. We've had upwards of 67 known leaks. I would argue there's probably been a lot more. Two of those tanks are currently leaking now. Those tanks hold 56 million gallons of radioactive bubbling hot waste that will be bubbling well past <laughs> our lifetimes. And right now they're trying to figure out what to do with it. I mean, the two tanks that are leaking right now are being allowed to leak because they don't have an answer for it. It's unbelievable. It's really a perilous situation. In the book, I interview some DOE scientists, one of which Dr. Alexander went on record with me and talked about his concern that he has for a potential explosion in one of these tanks. If the hydrogen buildup happens, you could see a, a horrific explosion that would be unlike anything that this country's ever witnessed before. So it's a really dire situation. And this doesn't even talk about what else is going on out there. I mean, there was a million gallons of waste that has leaked out of these tanks while it was operating. There's billions and billions of gallons of chemical sewage that was literally just dumped into the soil. All of this is making its way into you know, the groundwater supply, which feeds the Columbia River. So it's a very dire situation. Now, let's back up a bit. Sure. What's the federal agency that's in charge? Mm -hmm. Who's the contractor? They always privately contract out this administration of Hanford. And is anything actively being produced there, or is it just the legacy of waste from the atomic bomb programs and from nuclear power plants? Right. Well, the cleanup is allegedly being overseen by the Department of Energy. And the big contractor out there that's making most of the money is Bechtel, which has a very horrible track record, as, as we all know, with many projects over the course of its lifetime. It's a private corporation. It's not accountable to anybody. And it is reaping the spoils of U.S. ventures all over the globe, from Iraq to Syria. And right now, it is doing a horrible job in Hanford. The current estimation for the cost of the cleanup is $677 billion. How much that, have they spent so far? They are, I believe, Bechtel's contract somewhere between 50 and 60 billion. So the plan is to vitrify or turn into glass this waste that's in these tanks. That plant is called the VIT plant, the vitrification plant. And that plant right now has run somewhere like $44 billion, the last estimate that I've seen. And right now it's done nothing. It's the biggest construction project in the country. They have not vitrified any glass. And in fact, they just started up a test run for vitrification for low-level waste. 
and they were very excited about it. And it lasted about a week and it started overheating. This is costing taxpayers billions and billions of dollars. And the estimates just keep going up and the Republicans and Democrats are, you know, both wanting more and more funding, but it's not funding isn't the problem. It's, it's the lack of technical staff that the Department of Energy doesn't have out there. It's a lack of oversight. It's a lack of action among the unions. And so it, it's, you know, we can talk about the money, but I think everybody would agree that any amount of money should be spent to clean this place up. But if it's lining the pockets of private corporations and the job's not getting done, then something's wrong. The estimate of between 600 and 700 billion by the government to clean it up, billion, we're talking not millions, billions, is always a lowball estimate. It always ends up more. I mean, this is a staggering figure that can zoom over a trillion dollars. What are the two senators and the representative from that area? Can you name them? And What are they doing in Congress here? Are there congressional hearings reviewing this? Or everybody wants to try to shove this under the bed and keep delaying and delaying? Well, both of the senators, well, let, I mean, locally, we, you have some really right-wing representatives that are in Washington, and they are in bed with Bechtel. But they've been pushing for legislation that will continue to have these profits rolling in, and they are absolutely successful at that. Name the senators and representatives, Joshua. Sure. Maria Cantwell is the Democratic senator from Washington that represents the state there, and also Patty Murray is the other senator from Washington who has a history of being involved with Bechtel, and she herself has been out to the site a number of times. And it, you know, each time that these senators go out, they do these little press conferences, and they all talk about how successful the cleanup is going. They all talk about how Bechtel's doing such a great job. None of them want to hold Bechtel accountable. You know, the funny thing is, to me, the agency that's holding anybody accountable is actually the Washington State Environmental Protection Agency. They're the ones that seem to be going after Bechtel more than any of these politicians are. Even Governor Inslee, who, as you know, ran for president a couple of years ago now and was unsuccessful and is rather progressive on a lot of issues when it comes to Hanford, is complete failure. I mean, you should have all of the governors on the West Coast should be getting together to work on this issue. Who's the representative from the eastern state of Washington, which is a huge wheat growing area? One of the representatives is Representative Newhouse. He represents central Washington. Patty Murray and Dan Newhouse are leading an effort. They signed a letter last week to President Biden asking for more funding. And Murray carries a lot of clout because she sits on the Senate's Appropriations Committee. And, and Newhouse, who I just mentioned, sits on the House Appropriations Committee. And they're both strong advocates for increasing the budget. Joshua, the reason why I want our listeners to know who the key people in Congress are from the state of Washington who have responsibility for the, the high-risk yeah. Hanford Reservation is because the first step here is to have full-throated congressional hearings in the Senate and the House. I mean, you've got a potential liability of almost a trillion dollars here, not yeah. to mention the potential of a huge disaster, the likes of which the United States has never seen, which we'll discuss in a moment. And you could have Congress put on the public record the contract, the full contract uh, yeah. between Bechtel and the Department of Energy. You haven't been able to get that contract, have you? No, I haven't. 
And if your listeners, if they want to go after any representative out there, Dan Newhouse is the one that they need to go after. Jamie Herrera also is a representative out there. And Kathy Rogers is another representative. But Newhouse has a long history and as being the representative that's basically in bed with Bechtel and has for a long time advocated for more funding and has fought worker protection legislation. He has basically, he along with the other representatives in the area, there's, you know, so Hanford has about overlapping four or five different districts, three of those at the Washington state level. And the entire region has four representatives in the state that all have a stake in Hanford. You know, you have to also understand that a lot of these companies that work at Hanford have offices and in Seattle, they have offices in Spokane. So it's really a whole entire state apparatus, not just the representatives locally there. We're talking with Joshua Frank, author of the new devastating book titled Atomic Days, the untold story, the most toxic place in America. Why is it untold? Well, it's not told. The history of, of Hanford really hasn't been told from a grassroots people perspective. You know, there's been a lot of our books written sort of from the top down that talks about the scientific and engineering feats that went into developing Hanford. But there hasn't been a lot of text written about the aftermath, the poisoning of the planet, that what it did to the indigenous communities, what it did to the Japanese and a perfect example is when you go out to Hanford, you can go visit Hanford, but you can only really go to the B reactor, which was the first full-scale plutonium reactor in the world, which I did a tour of. And I'll tell you, there's no mention of what Hanford is today. There's no mention of even what this facility did in producing plutonium that was used in a bomb that was dropped on Japan. The only thing that they talk about is American superiority, American patriotism, and it runs through the veins of most of the people that work out at Hanford. And, you know, I wanted to write something that sort of countered that, that looked at the dark side of nuclear technology, that looked at the dark side of our weapons industry and our the environmental devastation that it's caused. You certainly did that. You're a very meticulous reporter with heavily footnoted. This is a 200 and so page book. Tell us in some detail the nature of the risk in terms of a, a disaster, sort of the worst case scenario. And But before you do that, any more radioactive waste being shipped regularly to Hanford, or is this just dealing with all the past radioactive waste? Well, to answer that, your last question, there's no more nuclear waste that's being shipped there and stored. However, there are parts of things like nuclear submarines that are laced with radioactivity that are being shipped out there and stored, which are just as happened within the last month. So I would argue, even though there's not any high-level radioactive waste being shipped out there, there's still radioactive materials being shipped to Hanford. But to answer your other question about the most dire sort of situation that could develop, as I mentioned, Dr. Donald Alexander, who really is just, he's now retired, but he was just an amazing scientist and an amazing person that explained a lot of details to me over the years. And, and his concern was that if you have a hydrogen buildup in one of these underground tanks, which they have had happen in the past, and luck, fortunately there was not an explosion, but he envisions it happening. If there was an explosion that you would have radioactive 
material spread across the country. I mean, you can think back to when Mount St. Helens blew and there was ash that's spread for something like 20,000 square miles and radiation was detected across the globe. Just a couple summers ago, we had massive forest fires in Oregon, the smoke of which was all the way out to the East Coast. If there was an explosion at Hanford, radioactive material would spread far and wide. I believe, you know, there's, and he, he explained it as well, that cities like Boise, Idaho, Missoula, Montana, Spokane, people wouldn't want to live there. There would be so much radioactivity. And this isn't to even mention what it would do to the Columbia River, which is the lifeblood for many, many farmers, salmon fisheries, commercial fisheries. It would de devastate the entire Pacific Northwest, the economy of which would collapse sending shockwaves across the world and probably crashing the markets globally. And then, of course, the aftermath, the toll that it would take to clean this thing up. It's a really dire situation. And I think that a lot of people just aren't aware of what the grave danger that it's in. If, you know, you got to think that these tanks are literally bubbling with radioactive sludge. And they will be doing that for the next hundreds of thousands of years. Plutonium has a 250,000 year lifespan. So they have to figure out how to keep this stuff safe. And when you have a for-profit corporation handling this mess, you have really poor government oversight. You know, the risks are great. There's no other power source. There's no other energy source that poses this kind of risk, even with, you know, talking about nuclear power. This radioactive waste was produced in nine nuclear reactors. And, you know, we still have people promoting nuclear power as an answer, but the same problems exist with nuclear power creates nuclear waste. And the situation at Hanford, as far as an explosion goes, is, is very real. It's entirely likely that it will happen. It might not happen for 50 years or 100 years, but as the clock keeps ticking, the risks go up. And then, of course, you just have the toll that it's already taken. You have these billions of gallons of radioactive sludge and chemical waste that have seeped into the groundwater supplies and is leaking towards the Columbia River. So, you know, it, you have plutonium, you have cesium, you have all sorts of really, really nasty stuff out there. And the workers that are tasked with cleaning it up are constantly coming down with ailments, with sicknesses, and the whistleblowers that speak out are often silenced. And if they don't have the resources to fight back, we never hear about them. Well, is the technology available to minimize the risk? What would be the technology to deal with radioactive waste? <laughs> well, you know, it's pretty interesting. So the two tanks that are leaking right now, they do not have an answer for. They do not know what to do. What they've done is they put tarps, essentially covered these things with tarps so that when it rains, the rain doesn't push the radioactive waste further down towards the groundwater supplies. That's their answer, tarps. You know, they they don't have an answer because it's a very technical, very laborious process. And I would argue takes more ingenuity in figuring out how to clean this up than it did to produce it in the first place. And you have very, very smart, you have very, very intelligent people, well-intentioned people working out there. So this isn't to minimize the work that they're doing. However, when they're wrapped up in a very corrupt system, it's hard to get things done. And it's hard to push forward ideas that might not be as profitable to the bottom line for these corporations. And the Department of Energy has been gutted over the years, and they simply just don't have the technical staff out there to manage this gargantuan project. Tell us about some stalwart citizen activity here, in particular, Tom Carpenter 
And the person he's been working with from a Native American tribe, Alfreda Peters of the Yakima Nation. Yeah. Well, so Tom, I would argue, is one of the best and most well-renowned advocates for workers, whistleblowers at Hanford and has for decades. He recently retired, but he's still involved with the organization that he helped to found, which was the Hanford Challenge. They're based up in Seattle, and they really focus on, on worker protections, and they've, they've worked really hard, and you know they've defended a number of whistleblowers, even a few that I read about, Walter Tamasitis being one, and his story was very excruciating. He came out and talked about the work environment that he was under and, and being essentially fired for speaking the truth and won a pretty nice settlement. So Tom's been... The organization that he helped to found was focuses on worker protections. As far as the environmental side goes, Yakima Nation, which, as you mentioned, Russell Jim really was the first one that that really spoke up for indigenous rights. He led the effort to stop any future radioactive dumping at the Hanford site. And to this day, no major decisions can be made at the federal level without the Yakima Nation and Indigenous Voices uh, having a seat at the table. So it's with the work that he's done, really, I think, from an Indigenous perspective, no one's done anything greater than Russell Jim. And his legacy lives on with the Yakima Nation now to this day that they're they're still working and, and fighting to have a voice and a seat at the table locally. Because you know, most of the decisions that are made are making, you know, not publicly, they're being made behind closed doors. So Getting, trying to fight to get access, trying to fight to get accountability is a difficult process. Another organization, the Columbia Riverkeeper, they really focus on the environmental impact that's happening along the Columbia River, and they're really strong advocates as well. But outside of, of the Northwest, Ralph, there's really no awareness. You don't have any of the big green environmental groups even talking about this. The Sierra Club, the Nature Conservancy, any of these organizations, none of them are, Hanford's really just not even on their radar. And Perhaps it's because it's a complicated saga. Perhaps it's because they don't have access or, or maybe it's because they all support nuclear power and nuclear technology. I'm not sure, but I would hope that this book can kind of bring a national spotlight to this, this situation because everybody's paying for it. Let's zero in on the maximum risk here. You don't shy away from technical details. How would an explosion occur? Well, I'm, I'm not a nuclear scientist. My understanding is that if you have an enclosed encasement like a tank, and these tanks are bubbling, so they do have to release steam, they're hot, they're boiling. If they, they do have a cooling mechanism that's in these tanks, they keep them relatively cool so that they don't overflow, just like if you're boiling water on your stove, right? So they do have to release some of that steam, that heat. In the case of this radioactive soup, it's producing hydrogen. Hydrogen if it builds up, can produce a lot of pressurized, basically, and explode out the top. This, this happened, and this is one of the reasons that Dr. Alexander is so concerned about it, because it, this type of explosion happened in the Soviet Union in the, the late 50s at a facility known as Mayak, which was the sister facility to Hanford. This explosion happened and decimated entire villages. It was just like Hanford, a covert operation, so wasn't public. And even when the CIA found out about it, didn't tell the public in the U.S. about it, because of course it would 
probably cause a little concern for those that lived near nuclear facilities in the US. But the devastation of that was horrific. Going back to Donald Alexander, who I interviewed, he was sent over to Russia in the 80s as part of a US delegation to research the damage that Mayak had done. And he was deeply concerned that a similar accident could happen at Hanford, where a cooling mechanism could fail, or if the pressure builds up, an explosion could happen which could cause a potential chain reaction if power were to go down. And this isn't even, this is just what could potentially happen if things are going correctly and things just malfunction. Just imagine if there was some kind of terrorist attack or if there was some horrific storm that could happen or, or an earthquake. I mean, there's a lot of different scenarios that could result in a really horrific event. Well, we've ended our conversation here. I hope people will be alert to something like this especially in the western part of the country. And it's really a great book that you put out here. It's very level-headed. It has no histrionics. It's called Atomic Days, The Untold Story, The Most Toxic Place in America, Joshua Frank. Thank you very much, Joshua, and stay with it. Great. Thanks so much for having me. We've been speaking with Joshua Frank. We will link to his book, Atomic Days, at ralphnaderradiohour.com. Up next, we're going to cover the real human impact of a broken immigration system. But first, let's check in with our corporate crime reporter, Russell Mokhyber. From the National Press Building in Washington, D.C., this is your corporate crime reporter morning minute for Friday, October 21, 2022. I'm Russell Mokhyber. AT&T Illinois will pay $23 million to resolve a federal criminal investigation into alleged misconduct involving the company's efforts to unlawfully influence former Illinois Speaker of the House Michael Madigan. The investigation of AT&T Illinois is being resolved with a deferred prosecution agreement under which the company admitted it arranged for payments to be made to an ally of Madigan to influence and reward Madigan's efforts to assist AT&T Illinois with respect to legislation sought by the company. Under the agreement, the government will defer prosecution on the charge for two years and then seek to dismiss it if AT&T Illinois abides by certain conditions, including continuing to cooperate with any investigation related to the misconduct alleged in the information. For the Corporate Crime Reporter, I'm Russell Mokhyber. Thank you, Russell. Welcome back to the Ralph Nader Radio Hour. I'm Steve Scrovan, along with David Feldman and Ralph. You know, most of us come to this country from somewhere else. We are a land of immigrants. Our next guest is going to share the stories of the most recent wave that has had to endure unprecedented hardship and even atrocities to brave their way here. David? Susan Cohen is an immigration attorney and founding chair of Mince Levin's Immigration Practice. She is president of the board of the Political Asylum Immigration Representation Project, also known as PAIR, and led a team working with the American Civil Liberties Union of Massachusetts to obtain a temporary restraining order on Trump's 2017 travel ban. She's the author of Journeys from There to Here, Stories of Immigrant Trials, Triumphs, and Contributions. Welcome to the Ralph Nader Radio Hour, Susan Cohen. Thanks so much. It's great to be here. Yes, indeed, Susan. You've described immigration laws almost as complex as the tax laws, which is really saying something. So we want to cover a lot of ground here in terms of the various ways that people can enter our country legally, gain green cards, permanent residence, ultimately citizenship. Because you are one of the most preeminent immigration lawyers in the country, and you've experienced so many cases, each one different than the other, and you have 
11 wonderful profiles of people who you've represented in your new book, Journeys from There to Here, published by River Grove Press. Let me ask you two questions. One is, why does it take so long to process asylum cases? And second, what are the criteria that prove an asylum case as verifiable and therefore allowing the people into the country? Those are good questions, Ralph. It didn't used to take nearly as long as it does now to process an asylum case, but the backlog in asylum cases has grown exponentially over the last five or six years. And what used to take maybe a year, six months to a year, is now taking upwards of five, six, and seven years just for those people, even those who enter the country illegally and then request asylum. Asylum is a benefit that can be requested by anyone who comes to the border or to one of our airports. And by law, if someone requests asylum, they have a right to at least what's called a a credible fear interview to determine whether it seems more plausible than not that their story holds together and that they may have a well-founded fear of persecution. You can demonstrate that you do if you can show that you have a well-founded fear of persecution on a number of different grounds, including political opinion, membership in a particular social group, nationality, religion, that kind of thing. But the problem with the timeframes that we have in the United States now with it taking so very long, both for affirmative asylum seekers who claim it without being put into removal or deportation proceedings first as a first order request, and those who are requesting asylum defensively, which is something that people can do if they are put into deportation or removal proceedings, they can request asylum as a defense to deportation. The backlogs have just grown so much because we don't have the infrastructure in place to handle the size of the populations that are fleeing and seeking to enter the United States and many other countries. And that simply is because the asylum system and program that we have was introduced into the law in 1980, and life and the world was very different then, and the expectations for the numbers that would be coming were very different then, and the infrastructure hasn't kept up. So we don't have enough officers, we don't have enough budget, and we have you know, a backlog as a result. There's over 400,000 affirmative asylum cases in the backlog, meaning people who had come legally and requested asylum in front of an asylum officer, which is not the kind of setting that one claims asylum in as a defense. It's, you know, it's an affirmative, non-adversarial process with an asylum officer. And those by themselves are, you know, in the upwards of 400,000 right now. And in immigration court, the backlog in immigration court, which is where these cases get played out as a defense to deportation, it's about 1.7 million. To give, put it in context, when President Trump came into office, the backlog in immigration court was about 500,000, and it just skyrocketed under the Trump administration. We don't have the infrastructure to keep up the judges and the budget to hire more people. Well, people should know that there are millions of people who are turned away. Obama turned away a lot. It isn't all one way, and then it ends up in immigration court. But what do you say about people 
who assert that asylum seekers can claim anything is persecution, violence, repression, perils, but does the law just recognize official government violence, discrimination, bigotry, threats, repression, or can an asylum seeker say, well, they're being threatened by a private gang in Honduras, and that's the reason that they have to flee and seek asylum. What's the criteria there? People are very puzzled about that. It's actually very tight, very narrowly applied criteria. A huge number of asylum applicants are denied their claims and removed from the United States because it's so very difficult to prove an asylum case and it requires corroboration as well as making statements in support of one's own claim. So it's just not accurate to say that if you fear generalized crime or generalized oppression from your country, that you could win an asylum case, you absolutely would not be entitled to win. Now, during the Trump administration, uh, Attorney General Jeff Sessions actually had the, you know, the Attorney General has the ability and the power under our system to be able to overturn precedent in asylum and immigration rulings. And they reversed two very important cases relating to one relating to the gang violence and, and another one relating to domestic violence victims who claimed asylum. If you have been victimized by a gang, if they have tortured you or attempted to kill you or hurt you, and you report the incident to the local authorities, and they're either complicit with the gangs, which happens in in some instances, or they ignore your requests and don't try to help you or try to, you know, sort of hinder your attempt to get justice in your own country under those narrow circumstances you can seek asylum. You know, it's a heavy burden of proof, very, very heavy burden of proof, very, very difficult to win an asylum case. And it requires, in order for it to be a fair process and for due process to really apply, it's really important that people have access to counsel because the difference in approval rates for someone who is represented by counsel and someone who isn't is dramatically different. Um, oh, and sure. That does domestic violence, where does that category fit? That's a social group category. You know, there are a lot of victims of domestic violence who have reported the abuse. Sometimes they barely survived the attacks. They've been crippled by them. All kinds of terrible things have happened to them, and they've reported them to their local police. And unfortunately, in those cases, some of those cases, they're just totally ignored. In some cases, they're attacked again. Um, so, you know, you can show that if you are in a group who's been victimized as a victim of domestic violence and you have sought relief but have actually been further harmed by the law enforcement in your own country, that could be a social group category. You know, we're talking with Susan Cohen, who's the author of the brand new book, Journeys from There to Here. It's profiles of 11 people from different countries around the world, not just through the southern border that she has represented. They're really pretty gripping. And most of them turned out very well. And these people raised families, became highly educated, made real contributions to society. We'll talk about one or two of them shortly. 
You know, when I'm asked about immigration on the campaign trail, Susan, I start with, you know, most people don't really want to leave their native land for all the reasons that are obvious. And that our policies, our foreign policies, especially south of the border, have been so brutally supportive of dictators in Central America, the Caribbean, South America, and oligarchs who have repressed their people into abject poverty and danger, that these people say there's no life for them. They have to go the arduous journey up and try to get over the border in the United States. And, you know, both parties don't really pay enough attention to that. This is a long-standing provocation, so to speak, where they force these people either to suffer death, despair, or destitution, or to come to this country seeking a better life. Why do you think there's not enough attention to that in the inside the immigration debate when it's discussed on the media? I mean, I, I could not agree more with you, Ralph, about that point. And I don't have the definitive answer as to why it's not discussed more, but I would suspect because it's complex and implicates so many other aspects of government and relationships with other countries, which involve very complicated calculations a lot of the time in terms of trade and other things that, you know, it's probably just too much for people to try to wrap their arms around it. But I totally agree with you. And I've seen it directly in my own practice. You know, like I said a few minutes ago, the fact that there are so many authoritarian regimes and corrupt regimes that we have had a hand in supporting over the years, where people can't get justice when they've been egregiously harmed or where the facts are evident and there's not a question about what happened, is just another indication of the kinds of intolerable life situations that people face in these countries where they they truly have to escape for their very lives. And I also agree, and I have seen it through the, you know, the lives of the thousands and thousands and thousands of immigrants that I've had the privilege of representing, that you're right, that most people, they would much rather be with their loved ones, with their, you know, their own support system, if they had one in their own country, what they know and they don't want to leave behind. The other side of this is even more despicable. It's that when we invaded Vietnam, that was not a declared war. It was unconstitutional. We invaded through Bush and Cheney Iraq, again, unconstitutional, undeclared war. We created a lot of refugees. And in Vietnam, I think that we allowed in almost 200,000 of them after we were expelled, in effect, by the North Vietnamese army. But in Iraq, it's been particularly vicious in terms of the exclusion of Iraqi refugees, even those who worked with the U.S. occupation. Same with Afghanistan. Yes. And Trump was particularly bigoted on this point. I remember when he was campaigning in 2016 in South Carolina, he pointed to two recently arrived poor refugee families from Syria. They just got there, and he pointed to them as potential terrorists. I don't think there's been more than 25,000 refugees coming in from Iraq alone, and now they're all backed up, and they're in danger. 
So they not only have an asylum argument, they have an argument under the refugee section of federal law. Isn't that true? Yes. So the standard for asylum and refugee status is exactly the same. The only difference is that refugees are those who seek the status from outside the U.S. and are processed outside of the U.S., usually at, in a refugee camp run by UNHCR, UN High Commission for Refugees. And asylum seekers are those who reach the border or have entered the United States and requested asylum. But the legal standard for the relief is exactly word for word the same. The same standards apply. We have just been, you know, struggling in this country to welcome sufficient numbers of refugees. The ceiling is, you know, has been up to 125,000. It was a little bit over that when the Refugee Act was passed in 1980. But over the years, presidents have the ability to raise and lower that number. And it dropped down. It was pretty high during the Obama years. And then when President Trump took office, it, it dropped to the lowest historical levels in the history of the program. And President Biden says that he wants to raise the numbers up again to the highest you know, amount it's been historically, which has been about 125,000. But because we're so backed up, everything is backlogged in the world of immigration in processing inside the United States and in processing outside the United States at embassies throughout the world. It started slowing down during the Trump years. And then because of COVID, it was a you know, like the perfect storm, everything has become extremely backlogged. And so the, the waiting list for refugee processing is that much worse. It was always long for refugees. It's ridiculous how long it takes a refugee in a refugee camp to ripen his or her case to be able to come to the United States once they've already been approved, vetted, and they're vetted very, very carefully more than any other kind of process. So many background checks and to eliminate any risk of a bad actor being allowed to come into the United States. But, you know, a lot of people don't realize the average waiting time in a refugee camp is like 15 to 17 years. It's like a generation almost for that case to ripen to come into the United States, except for certain fast track type of cases that we have, you know, separately approved in special programs. But, you know, everything is really, really backlogged. I want to get into some of your profiles in the book. The one that really was pretty stunning was uh, a woman called Rana from Egypt. Can you describe your experience as representing her? Yes. Rana was a postdoc at MIT. She'd done her PhD in the UK. She grew up in Cairo in Egypt, and she's a brilliant computer scientist who had decided that she wanted to try to stay because she had an idea for a company that she wanted to co-found with one of her other colleagues at, at MIT, actually her mentor, around a wearable device that's based on AI technology that they had invented that would help children and others with autism to wear this device. And then as a result of the signals they would get from this bracelet, be able to detect the expressions of the people with whom they were having a conversation to help them to understand the mood, because lots of people with autism really have a hard time understanding the context of a conversation with another person. And so that's what they were working on at the time that I first met 
run and then she founded a company around that and I helped her to get one of these extraordinary ability temporary work visas to stay temporarily to be able to work for the company that she founded. And afterwards, she decided she wanted to stay permanently and I helped her get permanent residence green card status again on the basis of her extraordinary ability as a path-breaking research scientist. She went on to invent many other incredible technologies. And she's one of the most, you know, the foremost women in AI technology today in the United States. And she's been, you know, very well recognized, profiled in the New Yorker and things like that. But she had a very difficult experience that I think people could read about if they get the book. They don't want to do a spoiler alert, but, you know, she had a really difficult experience once coming into the country, which demonstrates the arbitrary nature of the interactions that people have when they're on a proper visa, which comes up so often. And I have a lot of examples of that in the book of people on proper visas with immigration inspectors at airports trying to stop them from coming in when it's their right to enter their visas actually all set. They have the right documents. They have the legal right to enter. And yet the immigration inspector has a misunderstanding or makes a mistake of interpretation of the law, and she had to call me. And now she's pioneering a really tough new field. On page 34 of your book, she is talking about a human-centric artificial intelligence, and we don't hear that very often in terms of the arrogance of the algorithms and impact on everybody. But her quote caught my attention. She said, quote, she's talking about her small company, quote, we have very strong core values and we advocate for ethics, which I think is unusual for a small startup like us to prioritize the ethical and moral implications of the technology in building a productive ecosystem, end quote. So the benefits never end. The story of Peng from China is really a it could be a movie. You want to describe that? You represent <laughs> Peng. Yes, I was just reminded of his story a week ago because I was walking through Chinatown, which is right next to my office in downtown Boston, and I was reminiscing about about him and, and his case. He was a peasant farmer, illiterate peasant farmer from the south of China who had to flee the country because he and his wife violated the one-child policy in China. And he had an odyssey just to be able to get to the United States. But his life was really in danger. All the people that I filed asylum cases for really faced life or death situations, tremendous risk of persecution if they would have been sent back to their countries, a really gripping potential danger that could have befallen these people. And he... He had to flee. They didn't have enough money, actually, to have relatives help him raise money to have people help him leave the country. He was smuggled out over the mountains of what was then Burma, uh, Myanmar. And it took four months for him to finally get to the United States. He didn't speak a word of English. He had a little piece of paper with an uncle's phone number who had a Chinese restaurant upstate New York. And it was written on a scrap of paper that had survived the four-month journey over the mountains and everywhere else before he could get here, which amazingly he still had when he arrived. And he needed an interpreter, and it was very, very difficult to find someone who spoke his dialect because it's a very rare dialect in China. So 
you know, his case was challenging for so many reasons, but communication was really challenging. And they let him out after he passed his credible fear interview in detention because he was detained right after he got off the plane. And I became, you know, I was called by Pierre and I volunteered to take his case and I went down to the detention center and they had an interpreter on the phone there, which we used for his credible fear interview. He passed that because his case was strong. And so they told me they would let him out after informing me so I could go meet him there. And then, of course, what happened was they let him out of detention without informing me. He'd never been in a big city in the United States before. He didn't speak a word of English, couldn't read any signs because he couldn't really read or write. And I had to try to find him. I was very livid that they had let this man onto the streets who didn't know a thing about where to go or what to do. I didn't know what was going to happen to him. So I had like a whole team of people fanning out across Boston to try to find the guy. And I'm the one who ended up finding him at a bus station. And we ended up not being able really to talk very much. I had to cajole him to come in with me to my office. He remembered me from the, you know, the credible fear interview. So he knew who I was. He knew I was trying to help him, but he couldn't understand a word I was saying to him. I was like using sign language and holding him by, you know, his jacket sleeve to say, please come with me to my office so we can help you figure out what to do next with the case. And he didn't know what I was saying. So we ended up a bunch of us, my assistants, you know, the, the interns that we have working at our firm, we, we went with him door to door through Chinatown to try to find someone who spoke his dialect. And it took about an hour of knocking on the doors of all these Chinese restaurants. And finally, we found someone who spoke his dialect and we begged that person to come with us to dinner so we could talk him through what was going to happen next in his case and someone could interpret for him. So that was the very beginning of his case. That, and, you know, the, the man really was a little surprised and didn't know what we were doing, why they would want a stranger to come with them to a restaurant. And it was Pang's first time ever in a restaurant in his whole life. And he didn't know how, you know, how it worked to order and he didn't know anything, but the man helped us that night to communicate with him. And we were able to get in touch with his uncle in upstate New York. And we put him up in a hotel and his case ended up taking years and years and years through a, a number of different hearings to prove that he merited asylum. And in immigration law, the hearings are continued. Sometimes the continuances by themselves last a year. So you can have a couple of hours of a hearing testimony and you have to go another year till you get in front of the judge again. This is what it's like in immigration court. So his case went on for, for quite a few years so we could get all the evidence in and then, and then we were able to win his case. And I'm still close with his family and with him. He is able to bring his wife and family members along. He learned some very tragic information from, you know, the conferences we had in our office where we were able to place international phone calls on his behalf. And, you know, he he really learned a devastating piece of information when he was on the phone with us in, in my office and witnessing him learn that information and see what had happened back home for the first time with us witnessing his reaction was a very powerful experience because it was very, very tragic thing that had happened. How's he doing now, Susan? He's doing so well. He's a, you know, grandfather, thriving, like all the other clients, just so grateful to have a safe place to go home to, to not have to look over their shoulder, wondering what's going to happen next. You know, you know, he was also brutally attacked. 
so many people are brutally attacked and it's just such a relief for them to finally be in a safe country. The book is Journeys from There to Here, Stories of Immigrant Trials, Triumphs, and Contributions by Susan J. Cohen with Stephen T. Taylor. Thank you very much, Susan. I really have enjoyed being on with you, both of you, and I really appreciate the focus on immigration <clears throat> because it's it's a huge issue and, you know, there's a lot of right. misconceptions out there about, you know, the nature right. of it. It's good to get the facts to the people. We've been speaking with Susan Cohen. We have a link to her book, Journeys, from there to here at ralphnaderradiohour.com. So we're in the last few days of coming up to the midterm elections. Ralph, any last comments, observations, queries? Well, some very important issues are finally getting some visibility. I don't know why the Democrats took so long. One of them is highlighting the minimum wage, which 25 million workers would get if the $15 an hour minimum wage that the Democrats passed in the House but blocked in the Senate were to be enacted into law. You would think that all the candidates running local, state, and national for legislative seats would really be ballyhooing this and urging people to go vote for a raise. It's long overdue and they've earned it, for heaven's sake. It's been frozen at $7.25 an hour federally. Some states have higher but basically the federal government under the GOP has frozen it. The second issue that now is getting more visibility is the GOP policies attacking children. I mean, it's unbelievable when you add it up. The assault on children's interests, health, safety, and economic well-being has never seen such a widespread persistence as by this worst GOP in history since it was founded in 1854. You know, their motto is, once a child is born, is, you're on your own, baby. They don't support adequate neonatal aid. They oppose universal health care. The Republican governors in southern states have been sitting on all kinds of available Medicaid money that could go to the children, and they've blocked that. They blocked the extension of the $300 a month child tax credit that went to 58 million children, including children in conservative Republican families. They blocked that. They're obviously blocking the minimum wage, which could help children. They pushed under Trump more junk food, fat, sugar, salt, in the school lunch program. Imagine the crassest advocacy for the junk food industry that gives them money in campaigns. And of course, they've been against what all Western countries have provided their people, paid family leave, paid sick leave, and paid child care. Instead, the GOP, like too many Democrats, I might add, have pushed forever gigantic increase in the Department of Defense budget, more than the generals asked. So in the last few days, there's a lot that can be done and one of the best is something the FLCIO, I think, is starting to push, which is recognizing the work of over 23 million workers in this country who are on the midnight shift from 12 to 8. And they keep the country going while we're asleep. And I think some candidates are going to start campaigning all night before election, before hospitals, nursing homes, fire, police stations all-night third-shift factories, emergency repair. I mean, all the things that really are so critical during the third shift. And 
no candidates pay attention to these workers. So I think if candidates would pay some attention in close races, it can easily make the difference. If they put out a release respecting, recognizing the various occupations and professions and saying they're going to campaign. So those are some things that can be done. And for more details, just go to winningamerica.net. That's great, Ralph. Now, as you probably know, we've gotten some feedback, some reaction from listeners who question, you know, your support for Democratic candidates, you know, which is a departure for you. How would you answer those critics who say, what are you you talking up the Democratic Party for, for Democratic candidates? The stark choice on November 8th is between a fascist party and a autocratic party that supports a major social safety net for tens of millions of Americans and their children. For anybody who says, what about third parties? I said, go for it. But you know what's going to happen on November 8th. It's either going to be the Republican or the Democratic candidates for the duopoly. And there's never been a bigger gap, domestic policy, they're very similar on empire, than at the present time. I want to thank our guests again, Joshua Frank and Susan J. Cohen. For those of you listening on the radio, that's our show. For you podcast listeners, stay tuned for some bonus material we call The Wrap-Up. There's a lot more with Joshua Frank on nuclear, and Susan Cohen shares more inspirational stories of asylum seekers. A transcript of this program will appear on the Ralph Nader Radio Hour website soon after the episode is posted. Join us next week on the Ralph Nader Radio Hour. Our guest will be journalist, labor organizer, and author Steve Early to discuss his book, Our Veterans, Winners, Losers, Friends, and Enemies on the New Terrain of Veterans Affairs. Thank you, Ralph. Thank you, everybody, and make sure to vote. Trying. You say we have no choice. Say you're just one person. And who will hear your